This is an ABC podcast. It's the year 600, and three Irish monks have just landed on a sheer, sharp, inhospitable island. This is a place of rock and bird droppings. But the leader of the trio believes it has been chosen by God, the place for them to found a monastic retreat. The author Emma Donoghue uses this strange island for a tense novel about power, patriarchy and faith. That's today on The Book Show. I'm Claire Nichols. Hello. It is so strange how things work out on this show. Just on the last episode, I was talking about a monastic island with Anne Cleves, and today we are heading to another one with Emma Donoghue. Emma is a writer best known for her novels Room and Pull of the Stars, and her latest book is called Haven. Hi, Emma. Hello, Claire. Let's start with this island because this is a real place. Tell me about Skellig Michael. It's the extraordinary island that many people nowadays have seen in some of the Star Wars movies. Uh, It's Luke Skywalker's hideaway, the one covered with exotic birds. It's one of a pair. There's a big Skellig and a little Skellig, and they are about um, seven miles off the coast of Kerry in Ireland. And even though I'm Irish and I grew up there, I had never seen the Skelligs until 2016 when a friend took myself and my family on a boat trip around them. And by the end of the boat trip that afternoon, I had planned this entire novel in my head to answer the burning question of how on earth did monks manage to survive on that island in the year 600? You know, where would they begin? Yeah, because this is basically like, it's almost like a big kind of rock face coming out of the water. When you imagine an island, you know, a bit of flatland with a palm tree, it's not that, is it? No, it's the spikiest piece of land you ever saw. It it rears up like some kind of natural cathedral. And it's not even clear, you know, which bit they could have landed on first. Because now what the, what the visitor will notice is 600 uh, stone steps that the monks hacked into the cliffs to help them up and down. But of course, on day one, they must have had to just pull themselves up by their fingertips. And I kept thinking, where would you begin? If you were, you know, a sort of sensible survival person, you would probably begin with, you know, planting seeds on some tiny little bit of earth you'd find or finding water. But these monks were not sensible. They were there in order to retreat from the sinful world and to set up a sort of outpost of a pure, pure religion. And um, a sort of, you know, on the very on the very edges of Christendom is what they would have said about it, that it was meant to be an utterly pure monastery. So their priorities were probably like, let's carve a cross first before we do any fishing. So I was really intrigued at the at the idea of of how the religious and the practical questions would mingle in their attempt to survive on that rock. You know, you're saying a, a survivalist would, you know, look for water first. I think a survivalist would just choose a different island. I mean, uh, the way you write <laughs> it in the book, there's no there's no spring, there's one tree, so there's not even firewood for a fire. I mean, it really seems just, I don't know, like madness to, to choose to settle there. It's perverse, isn't it? And yet this kind of madness pushed a lot of Irish monks to to travel huge distances. And many of our well-known saints would found one retreat, you know, on a mountain or or on an island in a lake or a distant 
Sea Island. And then so many people would flock to study and kneel at his feet that he would then have to move on and find somewhere even lonelier. So it was an extraordinary business. Um, you know, the, this happened all the time in early Christianity. And Irish monks were known for their traveling and their sort of inexhaustible energy in founding these, these weird little communities. Um, and of course, they thought they were taking over land that was nobody's, you know, it was a very colonial sort of project, really, that they would find an empty spot and they would claim it for God, you know, stake their cross on it the way you might stake a flag in the more traditional form of colonialism. So it's a very strange enterprise to me. It's, it's you know, it's patriarchy at, at its purest, you know, one old man basically ordering the other two around. And um, it's it's a very... Um, it's a very harsh impulse to to seize this land and to take pleasure and and relish in in how difficult life there is. You know, the more they suffer, the more they say, "This is wonderful. We're offering it up to God." So, you know, I, I drew on a lot of memories of my Catholic childhood in Ireland. Yeah, there's so much to get into there, but I am stuck on this Star Wars thing. The fact that we've all seen this island in, I think it's The Force Awakens and in Last Jedi. Did you see the island? before or after the Star Wars connection? I have never actually been um, on it, but I did see the island before I saw the Star Wars films, yes. I'm not enough of a Star Wars film buff that I sought out all of them. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I had um, been on the boat trip around them before that. But what I love about the Star Wars connection is that they had to include the puffins because during certain months of the year, um, this island is is inhabited by so many bird species. It's a it's a, a real haven for birds, in fact. And of course, the filmmakers couldn't disturb the puffins, and there are so many of them that, that it would have been hugely expensive to edit them out. So they decided to call them porgs and to include them in the story. So that's you know a lovely example of how and um, these islands are are really their their true inhabitants are the birds, and humans have always had to come to some kind of accommodation with them. Even. So obviously, the monks in my book mostly eat them. <laughs> so it's, one of the reviews said, not a book for vegans. No, I like that even Luke Skywalker has to make space for the puffins. Um, I guess it's a pretty popular island now. Do people go and see it because of the film connection? When you're when you're trying to book a landing trip, you have to book it about six months in advance. There are very few boats allowed to land there because, of course, it's a really precious place. And um, the monks' stone clochons or stone huts that they made entirely without any cement or mortar, they just perfectly shaped the bits of stone. So these beehive huts are still there. And um, so it's the UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's, it's a very delicate landscape. It's got very little earth up there. And so people are only allowed to land in small numbers and there's, you know, it's it's uh, hugely popular. I, I saw on Twitter there was a poll today saying, what bit of Ireland would you like to visit? And 60% of the respondents all said, Skellig Michael. So it's an extraordinary sight. Wow. Um, you talked about your childhood Catholicism, and this is a book about religion and faith. Uh, are you able to tell me a bit, Emma, about your relationship with faith now? Well, it's funny. You know, I, I left the Catholic Church at 20, but I've always remained religious and very interested in the the pleasures as well as the distortions of religion. And I think ever since my childhood, I've been sort of mulling up what was good and bad about it and treasuring um, so many of the experiences that get you sort of away from the petty every day and away from the selfish and materialistic, you know, that, that 
you know, religion at its best is is a wonderful kind of exalting in that it makes people able to, you know, triumph over over their everyday irritations and it, it lifts them higher. But equally, it can be a rod that they use to beat others with. And, you know, so much bad has been done in its name. You know, Ireland has a, an appalling history of of um, institutions in particular for, you know, so-called Magdalens and um, awful orphanages and um, in so-called industrial schools. So um, I'm, I really have a, a painful sense of the the very mixed inheritance that Christianity has been um, for, for Ireland. Um, but in a way, I suppose one reason why I keep coming back to these stories of religion is that it can be applied to other things too. For instance, in a way, the book is asking the question, you know, um, which is better, you know, zeal or sanity? So the the prior has a vision and wants to go on this trip. And so, you know, the whole extraordinary adventure unfolds because he is seized with this obsessive vision, which frankly is very like what happens to novelists. You know, we're not rational either. We go on a boat trip and by the end of the boat trip, we're saying, I must write a book set in the year 600. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's, there's nothing very sane about the creative process. And then, you know, the other two monks are much more ordinary and down to earth and, and balanced. And so the novel is kind of weighing up the pros and cons of, of, of passion, I suppose, whether it be religious passion or another kind of passion. Um, you know, how much should we should we give ourselves to a political cause or um, a particular, uh, you know, good work? And um, how much should we, you know, relax and bake a cake? <laughs> I think sometimes life would be better if everyone just relaxed and baked a cake. Um, let's talk some more about these three monks, because they are three such compelling characters. And the leader is art. Um, he has this dream that, as you mentioned, where he takes two monks to an unpopulated island to found a monastic retreat. Can you tell me a bit more about this man? You know, he becomes in a way the, the leader of his own mini cult. So I decided that, you know, I would give him the qualities that cult leaders usually have, and um, that he has he has talents and charms, and he just seems like the most impressive person in the world. And um, he, he's, you know, survived the plague, for instance, which means that the other two think of him as this incredibly special chosen person that he managed to, you know, live through the plague. And he uh, is very scholarly and he's copied out many books and he knows things like that the world is a globe, which not everybody knew in those days. Um, so he seems really impressive. And above all, he's choosing them. You know, he, he says to both the old man Cormac and the, the young one Trin, God wants you to come to, to find this island with me. And of course, like all slightly vulnerable outsiders, they are so flattered by being chosen in this way and by feeling so necessary. And the harder he works them, the more they feel that they are hugely important to the enterprise. So it's a kind of a, a study of the psychology of, of, of a cult, really. Um, but I, I wanted to create a situation in which the other two monks would would finally start to question the kind of warped rule of their leader and to ask to ask these big questions for themselves. Well, of course, the older monk Cormac and the younger monk Trian, they're the ones with the skills, actually. I mean, art, you know, can talk the talk, but Trian's the one catching food and providing for the team. Cormac's the one building shelters. I mean... These guys are actually the ones keeping everything going. Yeah. I suppose also I saw it as a kind of, you know, study of, you know, patriarchy, which has always been not just the rule of men over women, but old men over everybody else. You know, so the idea that Trina in particular is, is you know, bossed about and persecuted by this 
by this much older man and that he doesn't understand how much strength and vitality he has himself. And of course, the task in the book that Trian hates most is, is his main task is copying out books. I mean, I'm a big book lover, obviously, Claire, but, you know, in those days when you had to copy books out a letter at a time, it was incredibly painful labor. And there are many examples in, in um, Celtic manuscripts of monks writing little notes in the side, like, I'm so bored, you know, the time moves so slowly. You know, there's a lovely little poem one Irish monk wrote about there's my cat playing freely and here I am shackled to my pen, you know, <laughs> there's no escape from it. So yes, I'm afraid book writing comes across as a pretty hideous job in those days when you had to, you know, grind up your paints for yourself while leaning on a rock. But of course, you know, beautiful manuscripts did get produced um, in, in times of, of war and horror and um, under really difficult circumstances. So, you know, this, this, this culture of Celtic Christianity that I'm talking about, it did amazing things, even though it, it can now strike so many of us as being absolutely perverse in, in values it chose. Oh, yeah, perverse. I mean, they are focusing on copying out this manuscript instead of, you know, building a shelter to keep warm or going and getting, yeah. find, try to find some and firewood. And you're thinking, who'll ever read this manuscript, you know? They're <laughs> <laughs> all going to die on this rock. You know, I suppose, I like with all doomed enterprises, you know, like like in something like Moby Dick, you're, you're still fascinated, even as people make a bad choice after bad choice. Um, you know, lit, lit, literature is, is not usually about sensible people. <laughs> um, this leader, Art, um, he really thinks he's doing God's work. You know, he says this island... Um, this hidden haven had been saved for them since creation. And the whole way through, I wasn't sure if he was being pious, if this was about God or if this was about art, you know, if this was more pompous, perhaps. You know, I, I, I don't think he's not a hypocrite. He's not one of these cult leaders who secretly has a Lamborghini and 20 girlfriends. It's more that... In, in serving God, he is, of course, serving himself. Um, you know, the story he tells himself is that it's all for God, but that's that's also a very good excuse for striding around the island, bossing everybody about and punishing them arbitrarily. Um, he has so subsumed himself in his religion that, you know, he, he gets enormous pleasure from, you know, declaring and acting out the word of God, even though we, of course, from our 21st century perspective, can see it as selfishness, pettiness, crankiness. Um, but he is sincere um, that, you know, that's that's the sad thing about it in a way. There's a moment when, you know, he says to them, it doesn't matter whether we live or die. It honestly doesn't matter. You know, it's all about our eternal souls. Our bodies don't matter. So so he's like someone from another world. In fact, in many moments in writing Haven, I thought of it as science fiction because, you know, they're, they're stepping onto such an alien environment and um, the, the, the questions they're wrestling with are so alien to most of us. Um, so it's it's almost like reading something set on another planet. And I should make it clear, these guys took a boat to this island. I mean, it was pretty random. They basically just got in a boat and let the wind take them wherever God decided to take them. But they're not going to get back in the boat and go and get supplies. You know, they could go and trade for some firewood and some, you know, oil and things. Why aren't they doing that? Yes, indeed. And and we know from the archaeological record that ultimately the long-term community on Skellig Michael, which which was much bigger than three, um, it was probably at least a dozen, they did the sensible thing. Ultimately, they got um they brought animals over and they traded with the mainland. They probably sold their bird feathers and got things like um um wheat and uh, oil and wine for the communion ritual. 
Um, but I was really interested in what a first botched mission might have looked like, one that was too extreme and too pure. Um, so the archaeological record was hugely important for suggesting to me the, the, the bad decisions that they might have made on the first go. Um, for instance, um, I was I was really interested in what plants there might potentially have been on the island. And so I, I combed my way through the archaeological dig um, and it's mentioned Rowan and Rowan can grow into a small tree. And I thought, oh, what if there's just one tree like in, say, Waiting for Godot? You know, <laughs> what if Art cuts it down at some point because he's perverse enough to do that, you know? Um, I mean, the whole thing is 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 such an environmental parable as well, because while I was writing it, you know, even when you write a historical novel, you're you're aware of what's going on in the world today. So, you know, the the COVID context shaped this book, the whole idea of sort of getting away from a, a filthy and dangerous world full of pestilence, but also the environmental crisis. Um, and, you know, in particular, when when I read articles about like, oh, maybe we should all settle on Mars, that, that'd be a great fresh start for the human race. And I was thinking this is nonsense we bring our baggage with us and you know if we messed up earth we can certainly mess up mars even more easily so um it's funny how if you tell a very very specific story about you know monks in the year 600 on skellig michael you are in fact always telling a, a much bigger human story too these three men who sacrifice comfort and security to go and follow what they think is god's calling do you do you admire them? I do, actually. I, I think there's a very strong, genuine self, I'm trying to think of a, a very Catholic verb, self-abnegating impulse, you know. And certainly, you know, especially Cormac and Treen are genuinely trying to rise above their needs and their irritations and their aches and pains. I find them very likable. I think in the case of of the, the prior art, I think he's he's getting, you know, nasty psychological pleasures from it. You know, he's really enjoying punishing. He's he's enjoying making arbitrary rules about what's allowed. Um, he's enjoying being the boss. But but I do admire um the kind of say, you know, the, the Mother Teresa figures of this world, even if they end up making some decisions that the rest of us think are bad. Um, I, I admire people who throw themselves into something. You know, I'm a, I'm a terribly, you know, easygoing and, and balanced individual. But, you know, I'm not the kind of person I would ever write a novel about because it's much more interesting when somebody is extreme and seizes an opportunity or, you know, sets off down a path uh, of obsession. So say in my novel, The Wonder, which again is, is about religion, but set in the 19th century, that's the one that's um, the film is coming out on Netflix this year. But that's about a little girl who, who decides that she can live without eating because she's so caught up in the, the in the Catholic mystique of, you know, less food is better. Purity is better. Renunciation is better. Um, that she actually deludes herself that Jesus will be happy if she doesn't eat anymore. So these are heartbreaking stories in a way, but um, they're also sort of thrilling because you can see that someone is really trying to take hold of a story that's bigger than themselves and, you know, rise above the sort of petty circumstances of their life. Emma Donoghue, I really liked the survival elements of this novel. I, I've been watching a lot of that TV show alone, so it's really in my wheelhouse at the moment. And there's so much detail here about how the men make fires, they catch food, they build rock shelters. I was wondering if you are now ready to go and survive in the bush, Emma. Have you learned some things? <laughs> Well, I have all the theory and none of the practice. Um, I drew on so many helpful, you know, um, Reddit forums, YouTube YouTube videos and um, message boards where people would talk about how to create authentically, you know, 
um, Neolithic tools. Um, I found one long video in which um, a man makes a beautifully tuned musical pipe out of a, a swan bone. So, um, no, I'm afraid I draw on the um, obsessive hobbies of others uh, rather than doing it myself. It's funny, during COVID, I think a lot of us had moments of thinking, is society going to come crumbling down all at once? And when I was buying some dehydrated food to keep in the basement, you know, for my teenagers, I found myself thinking, I don't want to live and get to the point where I'm eating this dehydrated food. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I have, even though I possess a, a bug out bag, as they call it, because uh, I bought four little backpacks for the four of us, I can't imagine actually slinging it over my shoulder and saying, OK, let's go to the river and boil our water. Um, so no, as as with as with all these extreme situations in my novels, I, I like to think about them, but not to actually do them myself. What's what's in the bug out bag? Pretty minimal. I mean, there's a little there's a little flint that can spark a flame, and there's a w one water purification tablet, one pair of disposable gloves, uh, you know, a torch with one battery. I mean, it would really only allow you to survive a two day apocalypse, nothing longer. <laughs> there's one granola bar. That's right, one granola bar. <laughs> yeah, I think you need to do some work on that, um, Emma. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about writing in general. Um, can you start by telling me, are you still using a treadmill desk? I am, yes. I'm sitting right beside it right now. Only I think um, we had tenants, tenants in our house um, a few years ago and I suspect the little boy got a bit of Lego in it because it makes a terrible clanking. <laughs> so it sounds more like the punishment treadmill that, say, Oscar Wilde was condemned to walking on in, in, in um, Reading Jail. Um, but yes, I use a treadmill desk um, and I also work pretty much anywhere. So um, I've combined parenthood with writing mostly by just snatching any period of time. So I will drive my daughter to her singing class and I will stay parked outside and I'll whip open the laptop and get 50 minutes of writing done. Um, I, I write on, you know, planes, trains, automobiles, <laughs> backseat of the car, anywhere at all. Yeah, the treadmill desk is is delightful. I think um, I think many more people are going to be using them in another few years. I can't imagine having the coordination to write and think and walk at the same time, but I'm very impressed that you can do that. But you know, typing is easier than handwriting, and of course, a lot of the time as a novelist, you're staring out the window. You know, you're not writing new words every single minute. You know, there's a, there's a fair amount of daydreaming and mulling things over, or watching somebody else's videos on how to carve a bone into a pipe. So that's when you can walk. Um, and I also read that uh, you start the next book as soon as you finish the last. How how close is it between putting one book away and starting the next one? In fact, you know, they overlap. Um, for instance, as soon as I had a draft done of Haven, I would have started on um, the, the drafting of the next one, which I had been doing bits of research for for years and I've sold that one already. So they, they overlap greatly. I, I would probably not be drafting two novels at the same time, but certainly doing the research and the preparation because I like to have many years of mulling over a storyline um, in some cases to really try and get the story right. Um, I don't think I'm naturally good at plot at all. I think I can do dialogue very easily because, as you can tell, I could just keep talking until the cows come home. But um, but plot doesn't come too naturally to me. So so I find a lot of mulling over time really helps. And I also like to have very varied projects. So during COVID, I was working on my monks for this novel, but then also writing a musical. So they couldn't have been more different. Um, and again, in the past, I've often combined, say, a, a very dark, grim adult novel with a, a very, you know, full of fun and laughter book for children. So that really helps keep the writing varied enough that you don't feel, you know, trapped on your own monastic island, shall we say. I need to know more about the musical. <laughs> 
Oh, I can't talk about it yet because musicals take so long to come to the stage that, you know, I don't want to be talking about it in interviews for 15 years before it makes it. But let's just say it'll be a big singing and dancing musical. I'm working with a composer. And all the time the theatres were shut down, working on this musical was a kind of promise to myself. You know, theatre will come back. Um, someday we'll all be, you know, breathing in each other's air and, <laughs> and watching watching my characters singing and dancing. Oh, how wonderful. Has that been a, a passion of yours, musical theatre? Yes, and actually our 15-year-old daughter is very into musicals, so I suppose I've watched even more with her. And I love how economically musicals can can sort of jump through time and space. They're, they're not bound by the rules of realism because, you know, people are bursting into songs, so it's not realism at all. I love the way someone can, you know, grow up over the course of a single song or people can, you know, sail across the world all in a single song. And um, so I think it's a superb art form. And I've really enjoyed um, seeing how musicals have come to the screen in recent years, for instance, something like In the Heights, I think is using, you know, very, um, you know, old traditions for, you know, completely up-to-date material. So I think um, Lin-Manuel Miranda has done a huge amount to revitalise the form. Absolutely. Um, you've talked about how you're usually working on two projects at the same time. It sounds like there aren't a lot of breaks there. Is is writing a compulsion for you? It's happier than that. It's it's a guaranteed pleasure, really. And on days when I'm finding it hard to think of many new words myself, um, I'm reading other people. So, you know, I can always do the research, even if the actual writing bit is not flowing. Um, but, but you know, it, it usually flows sooner or later. So, no, I'd say I'd say it's like an incredibly enjoyable hobby that I have managed to earn my living by. I can't believe my luck, really. And, um, yeah, I, I never need to sort of, you know, set myself rules about it, about, um, you know, um, minimums or anything. I just come up with deadlines and then try and try and live up to them. Um, but it is, it's such a pleasure to me. Uh, and it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Emma Donoghue, your latest novel is called Haven. It's published by Picador. Thanks for this chat. Oh, thank you so much. This was lovely and very, very long and in-depth. Thank you. You're listening to The Book Show, where we are really rocketing through space and time today. Uh, we've been in 7th century Ireland already. Later, we are travelling to a near-future Melbourne with Grace Chan's Every Version of You. I'm really keen for you to hear about this book. Uh, but before that, here's a novel that takes you from contemporary Melbourne to the 80s and the Islamic Revolution in Iran to the 1360s in Gotland, in Sweden. It's called 40 Nights, and it's the debut novel of photographer and lawyer Peruz Jafari. The story begins in the Melbourne suburb of Sunshine, where Tishtar works. He's a photographer, a human rights lawyer, and a dreamer, someone a lot like Peruz himself, as Sarah Lestrange discovered. It is definitely largely based on my own experiences or drawn from my personal experiences. You know, the story was kind of growing within me. Um, it was inside of my soul and my heart. And it just came a point that uh, reached its maturity and it needed to be told. Forty Nights is a story of homesickness and the search for belonging. 
Like the main character Tishta, Peruz Jafari came to Australia from Iran in the mid-90s to further his photographic studies. But Peruz weaves three narrative threads to tell this story, one of which involves an apparition from medieval Europe. But I'll come to that. In one of the threads, we learn about Tishtar as a boy growing up during the Islamic Revolution and the Iraq invasion of Iran, which Peru says was a difficult time for himself, his family and his country. Oh, look, um, it, it was terrifying. Uh, you know, I was, I was very little um, when, when the Islamic Revolution happened. So again, you know, in setting those scenes, I have drawn from personal experiences and it was listening to add to the adults in the family that um, you know really opened my eyes to the horrors that were taking place. This is during the revolution in the mid nineteen seventies, and then uh, you know everything just life changed and a prosperous country with a very very uh, good reputation across the world. We went backwards, and uh, it was frightening. As a, as a child uh, growing up in, in that situation. And then, then later on, when the war broke out with Iraq, it was, you know, a double whammy. So within, within the country, we had the situation that we had, and then we were being bombed and invaded by Iraq. And so it was, I have no words to describe. So in 40 nights, Tishta goes to school not knowing if he'll return home. Yes, absolutely. For, for both, uh, you know, as I said, you know, he was almost like enemy within and enemy without. And so the experience intensified when the war broke out and, and we, we were being bombed. I guess I was lucky that I was living in Tehran, the capital city, and, you know, the bombs and missiles didn't reach us until a little bit later in, during the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq. But nevertheless, you know, we would be doing exams and we had to put our pens down and run to shelters and, um, you know, every morning when I left home, I would, I would wonder whether, whether I would see uh, my parents again. Yeah, I, I can't even believe that I have lived through that and I can tell the tales these days. Uh, quite, a, quite a dramatic experience both for myself and for a lot of thousands of people. Well, and I have to say, despite the trauma that you do convey, it, it, you do tell this story with a certain gentleness as well. Peruse. Yes. I think, um, you know, I was very fortunate to be nurtured and loved by my parents. So the home, the home environment was a very emotionally secure environment. And we shared the pain, we shared the grief, and we shared the loss. And mum is a writer, she's a poet, and so she would write poetry and then she would read it out and we would cry together, we would laugh together. So I guess, you know, having that emotional stability in the home environment gave me that safety, emotional safety, I guess, to, to be able to tell the story but not be too angry about it or too, too just distraught by it. Tishta, you know, recounts the story of knowing people who are disappeared and never heard of from again. And there are thousands of stories, thousands of untold stories, and every family will have at least one or two or multiple stories that um, they can share and, and, and uh, grieve about. You know, in saying that, you know, innocent people disappeared and that was horrific, that's not to say that, you know, if you're a political activist, you deserve to, to banish. Either way, it's a crime, but I think it's more horrendous when there's absolutely no excuse to um, arrest people and um, 
torture them and, and execute them without any trial. You know, we were just lost for words when, when those incidents happened. Peru's Tishta in your novel, 40 Nights, decides to leave Iran and migrate to Australia because it all just became too much. The surveillance, having lived through this war. Um, what led you to Australia? Very similar reasons, actually. It was There was a time that I felt I just could not do that kind of life anymore. And uh, despite my parents' uh, disapproval, I said, look, I just, I just can't do this. This, this is really, really hard. I felt I was suffocating, and it was unbearable to live like that. And, and as an artist in particular, I was a photographer. I had finished visual arts um, at university, and I just could not live a life of surveillance, basically. And, and I thought, no, I need to, I need to leave. So that, that was really very, very similar reasons to teach that. And while it was hard to leave his homeland and its rich traditions, Peruse came to Australia to study photography, but then he veered towards law, an interest that Peruse says was developed as a result of growing up in Iran. Social justice was something that always was discussed quite regularly in our household. And my granddad, mum's mom's father was, a, was an activist and he always stood for human rights and advocated for human rights. Mum was, um, she's a very strong feminist and, and, and I grew up with her values and, and she gave up teaching because she didn't want to be taught to, to wear a scarf. You know, I wanted to understand law. I wanted to understand how the justice system works in a democratic society because what I had experienced was not, was far from it. So it was initially the curiosity and then to, to learn the skills to defend human rights and then to um, stand up with comrades, I guess. That, that led me to, to, to study law and, and then I utilised it later on in, in so many different ways. And that interest comes through in another thread in 49ths. Tishtar is helping a neighbour with a legal case to get her nieces out of Somalia as refugees. They're in grave danger, but that doesn't mean the wheels of bureaucracy work any faster. And it strongly conveys the frustrations of working in this system, which Peruse knows all too well. Yes, indeed. It was very, very frustrating because, as you know, I did I did practice immigration law for, for, for a few years. And um, one of the reasons, in fact, that I gave up was because I just could not bear the heartbreak in, in the you know voice of my clients and then the frustration that we both felt by the wheels of bureaucracy, the rigidness of, of the processes that just cannot understand the dire situation that, that people are in. So again, you know, that, that story in the book was inspired by many, many, many cases of um, asylum seekers and refugees that I dealt with and their desperation for safety desperation for, for life with dignity. So I, I decided to bring a story together and highlight just one tiny example of the experience of refugees and, and humanitarian entrants in this country and the ordeal that they have to go, go through to get here. Well, 
while most of the book is rooted in realism, throughout Tishtar has, I don't know what to call them, these ghostly encounters with the past through the story of Gretel. It's not clear who she is at first, but the story builds to a revelation steeped in the history of Swedish Gotland in the 1360s, which really does take this story to another time and place entirely. Look, ever since I was um, small, I was just fascinated by by that region and in particular by you know Sweden. I had never been there, but I guess in my heart of hearts, I had always felt this connection. You know, when you know sometimes you go somewhere and you feel like I know this place, I've been there. I there's something about it. There was always something very magical about Sweden. And when I started writing this book, I just I just felt that there's this other story that has happened um, in the medieval period in the in 14th century, and I knew that the story had taken place in a small island. I just knew it, Sarah. I know this sounds really weird, but I I knew that story in my heart. And um, it just came out. And I guess, you know, my intention was also to highlight that humans have been invading other people's lands uh, for centuries. This is not just something that's happening now. It's been happening for centuries and, and well beyond and before, you know, the 14th century. And that, you know, repetition of invasion eradication of cultures and traditions and driving people out of their homes. This is not a new concept. We've done this forever. As Peruse mentioned, this story had been percolating for a while until he finally let it out. Now, um, I always wrote pieces and mum, who is my biggest cheerleader and, and inspiration, always, you know, pushed me along and said, you, you write really well, you should never stop writing. And when I started talking about this, she said, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I said, I've never written a book. She said, it doesn't matter. I, I know and I'm not biased, but you should definitely write. And it just all came out and... Um, it wasn't planned, Sarah. It just happened. <laughs> <laughs> the best way. So she must be very proud. Yes. Um, yes, family are quite proud. Can you see yourself writing more? Look, I think um, any creative process, um, I think, is driven and inspired by by the story or by, by the object itself. If it presents itself as strongly as this story did, absolutely, I won't say no. But I will not be seeking it. I think the story needs to come to me again in another form and another time. Peruse Jafari with Sarah Lestrange. Sarah is the producer of the book show. And Peruse's book is called 40 Nights. It's published by Ultimo Press. Now I want to take you to Melbourne in the year 20. 80. The Yarra has dried up. Federation Square is gone. It's been destroyed in American air raids. And on La Trobe Street, shoppers brave the searing temperatures to be the first to buy a new pod, the latest development in VR technology, which will allow them to fully immerse themselves in a safer, cleaner digital world. 
This is the setting for Every Version of You, a debut novel by the Australian writer Grace Chan that absolutely took me by surprise. Hi, Grace. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for the kind words and for having me on the show. It's a real honour. Oh, it's my pleasure. So just say I've queued up and I've bought a new pod, Grace. Uh, How do I use it? What does this thing do? Oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be very exciting. It's going to be nothing like you've ever experienced before. (laughs) You're going to open up the box in, you know, your spare room or wherever you'd like to put this magical device. (laughs) And it's going to expand into this egg-shaped thing on its side. It's going to open up. It's going to glow green inside. And it's going to fill with this squelchy gel um, that makes it look sort of like a pod or a bathtub. And then you climb in, you take off all your clothes, you make sure all your hair is shaved off, you climb in and the gel allows the virtual world to connect directly to your brain. So neural impulses from your brain to the virtual world back and forth are transmitted through this um, very advanced uh, technology in the gel so that you can experience a virtual reality that is pretty much as immersive, um, fully sensory, you know, sight, sound, touch, smell, as physical reality. And it also keeps all your other bodily functions ticking along as well. So you can spend, uh, you know, almost as much time as you'd like in this digital utopia. <laughs> you can do your number ones and your number twos and it'll clean it all up for you it, You'll take care of all of that. <laughs> it makes life very convenient. <laughs> uh, so this world I'm going to travel to in my new pod, it's called Gaia. Uh, what is Gaia? Yeah, so Gaia is, well, in the novel, Gaia was sort of the creation of this big technological and um, research company conglomerate that I made up called Neuronetica Somnes. And it was sort of what I imagined VR might look like perhaps two generations from now when you know all the purposes that we might be developing virtual reality for now, you know, work, video conferencing, leisure, gaming, socialising, all of that gets kind of merged and all the all the little um, virtual reality worlds get kind of merged together into one big, um, quite immersive virtual reality where you can do all of that. You can meet your friends, you can socialise, you can eat out at rest, virtual restaurants, you can go to art galleries, you can do your job in, in this world of Gaia. I, um, a few weeks ago, went and did my first VR gaming uh, experience, and it was pretty cool. It really surprised me, actually, how much I felt like I was in the world. And that was just, you know, having something over my eyes. I know you're not a a scientist, but how close are we to the kind of technology that you're imagining in this book? (laughs) I had a very similar experience when I went to a VR gaming centre a couple of years back, I was really surprised by how immersive simply putting on the headset and holding the controllers could be. It really does transport you into another three-dimensional, four-dimensional space. So yeah, I I was similarly wowed by the technology we have today. Um, And I'm sure it's already come a fair way from um, where it was a couple of years ago. Obviously, for every version of you, I um, took some creative liberties <laughs> and I write speculative fiction. So I, I drew a lot on more on my own scientific and medical background. So just thinking about how it is that we experience physical reality and how 
that can be translated into the digital world and the digital world can create, you know, through technology, uh, we could have experiences in the digital world that are just as immersive, um, perhaps just as meaningful, just as powerful as ones in um, the physical world. So based on my lay understanding, I think the technology of the new gel and the new pods is still a little way off, but I'd like to think that there's a sense of, you know, the worlds that, that I created for the novel, there's a sense that it's, there's a bit of familiarity in that as well. Yeah, that, I think yeah. just in the opening scene of everyone queuing up to get their new pod, you know, reminded me of when the new smartphone comes out and, you know, those keen beans who will camp out all night to get their hands on it. And people <laughs> want to be the first, don't they? They want to be the first to embrace this new technology. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That queuing up for the latest technology, that's very much a present day (laughs) sort of phenomenon. (laughs) But of course, in your book, uh, the world that these people are queuing up in is a little bit different. I talked about that scene you paint of a Melbourne where the Yarra has dried up. Um, It's so hot, you know, 47 degrees. And these people in the queue are wearing goggles and gloves because the air is so dirty and the radiation is so high. It's a pretty grim view of the future yeah i think it's interesting thinking about the worlds that i created for every version of you because there is the the world of gaia the virtual reality world which is very shiny and clean and pristine and it's a place where you can kind of explore whole quite limitless possibilities and that is juxtaposed with the chapters that take place in in the physical world the left behind world and I suppose um you can call it climate fiction in a way because there's you know I do think about the climate catastrophe and what what Australia might look like in two generations from now if things keep going the way that they are so I guess it is I didn't want the worlds that I created to be too too grim and too dystopic. <laughs> I hope that there's, you know, both the worlds that I presented, both Gaia and the physical world, there's, they're not supposed to be totally grim, each of them. They're supposed to be um, threads of hope in, in both of those worlds that I created. So I hope that comes through a little bit as well. Yeah, it's not all good and all bad in either world. I think one of the interesting things about this world, Gaia, is, you know, this is a VR world. This could be anything that we could imagine. Yet the world looks, I don't know, a lot like the world does right now. And and you make some interesting observations about <laughs> the lack of imagination in this world. You know, the fact that in a VR world where space is limitless, people still live in apartments and we still have skyscrapers. I mean, does this show just a lack of imagination on our part? Yeah, the characters kind of talk about how Gaia could have been anything. It could have been very different from the world that we, the physical world that we live in today, but but we ended up creating a virtual reality that mirrors our world in many ways. And why is that? Is that because we we crave the familiar? We're afraid to think outside the box. Um, I don't, it could be a lot of different reasons, I suppose. And towards more towards the later parts of the novel, when people's, you know, when the uploading technology is introduced and people's minds change a bit more once they become more digital, <laughs> Um, I think then they can think 
and interact with the virtual world in more expansive ways as well. Okay, you mentioned uploading. We better explain this to people listening. <laughs> so basically, halfway through the book, uh, the technology develops and people have the ability to fully upload themselves to the digital world. What does this mean exactly? <laughs> yes. So an exciting new technology is introduced by Neuronetica Somnus, where you can have your consciousness pretty much copied out of your physical body and translated from the squishy organic material of your brain, of your nerve cells, and transmuted into the cloud. So you become a digital being. Instead of um, neurons, you have your, your mind uses the bits and bytes of the digital realm. So you never have to get out of your pod. And, um, but what about the human body? What happens to the human body if the mind has been fully uploaded to the digital world? I don't want to give away too many spoilers in terms of the uploading process and what that or impact that has on the body and physicality. But, you know, you've got to think about what happens to the physical body when it's left behind. You mentioned your medical background. You're a psychiatrist as well as a writer. So I'm sure this idea of self is something you think a lot about. Um, if I'm inside a digital world, is that really me if I'm not in my body? Is that still me? <laughs> oh, Claire, I think you've struck at the core question of the novel and what I was kind of pondering and pondering over and over again as I wrote and rewrote it. So I think that was one of the fun challenges of writing this novel to tackle that that question exactly. I don't pretend to have any simple answer to that question. Um, but yeah, it was really interesting to think about, of course, how we construct ourselves, our identities. And obviously that's something that draws me to psychiatry and also to writing um, the stories, in particular self-narratives, so the stories that we tell ourselves to hold ourselves together and to hold our relationships together as well. Do you see yourself as a psychiatrist first or a writer first? Oh, <laughs> I think both, but I, I love writing. You know, writing is just gives me a great amount of joy. And I think what's so wonderful about this book is how well you draw the two main characters in this book, living in this world. They are people who you can really relate to. The protagonist is Tao Yi. Can you introduce me to her? She starts off in some of the flashback scenes when we first meet her. She's about 19 or 20 years old. Um, and she is a Malaysian, Chinese, Australian woman. She was born in uh, Ipoh in Malaysia, um, where she grew up with her mother. And she migrated to Melbourne with her mother when she was about 12 years old. She works now as something called an authenticity consultant, um, which is a, <laughs> a, a caregiving role in a way. She consults with people about their identity crises. Their online identity crises, Their online identity crises and helps them to reconnect with um, a true version of themselves. <laughs> Um, so she is a, a caring character, a caregiving character and a caring character, and she's also quite a protective character in many ways. 
just occurs to me that everyone on Instagram is probably having some sort of identity crisis, right? You know, what we <laughs> present to the world as compared to what's really going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. I think we have so many different identities that we kind of put on and try on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Tayi lives with her boyfriend, uh, Navin. He's He spends more time in Gaia than Tayi does. Why is this space so important for him? Yeah, so Taoyi and Naveen, um, they've been in a relationship for some years. Um, Naveen is gradually more and more drawn to the virtual world of Gaia over the years, particularly because he has a chronic illness that has left him changed physically after several surgeries and left him in quite some pain. So he finds a lot of relief in Gaia and he also finds that he's more able to be himself in, in virtual reality. He, um, he feels freer to do the things that he wants to do and explore the things that he wants to explore. So that's, that's the pull for him. Mm, and obviously this is going to be a source of great tension between the two of them when one wants to live their life online and the other is drawn back to the physical world. Yeah, that is definitely something that um, pulls them in different directions as the technology advances. Tao Yi is more ambivalent about the virtual world and she's always kind of gone through things with a feeling of being somewhat drifting. So I think there's things about the virtual world that make her feel even more adrift. Um, you know, she misses the physicality of, of things in her her previous life. She thinks about the things that are left behind if she spends more time in the virtual world, particularly ties to her mother, her family, her heritage, um, and her relationship with Naveen as well. I mean, this is really the ultimate would-you-do-it novel. Um, And I guess that's going to be my last question for you, Grace. If you could fully (laughs) upload yourself to a cleaner, shinier, safer world, would you do it? Would you think about it? Oh, yes. (laughs) That's a a great question. I I think it's an interesting question too because obviously I write the novel from the point of view of Tao Yi, who's very ambivalent about many things in virtual reality. Um, but I think in a way I'm a bit Team Naveen as well. Really? I think that, wow. Yes. So I, 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 I think it's possible that I'm, I might succumb to a digital future. <laughs> well, why don't we do this interview again in 20 years' time in Gaia? How about that? Yes, deal. <laughs> Let's do it. It's a date. <laughs> Grace Chan, thanks so much and congratulations on this book. Thank you so much, Claire. And Grace Chan's debut novel is called Every Version of You and it's published by Affirm Press. Now, just before I go, if you are a regular listener to The Book Show, you know how much I love the performing arts. I'm a total theatre nerd at heart. And one of my great pleasures each week is listening to The Stage Show podcast, which is hosted by my wonderful friend and colleague, Michael Cathcart. And Michael... You had such a wonderful guest on the show recently. Oh, Claire, indeed we did. He's a veteran Broadway director. He's won three Tony Awards. He's been nominated for seven in his career, and his name's Jack O'Brien. He's the director of a new Australian production of that wonderful musical Hairspray. 
Oh, only one of my favourite musicals of all time. I've seen it in New York and in London and both times when they've got the last number, you can't stop the beat. It goes forever, Michael, but not long enough for me. I've just been going, keep going, keep going. I don't (laughs) want to go home. I know. It's so joyful, isn't it? Well, this is the guy who steered that show to eight Tony Awards. Imagine that. Um, He got Best Director, he got Best Musical, and now he's bringing a, a, a refreshed version of the show to Australia and anyone can meet him. It's a lovely conversation. He's so generous with the stories about his craft and his life and at one point he's reduced to tears when we play him, of all things, a barbershop quartet. I am destroyed. Listen, I myself have not heard them sing since I was 20 and I'm not no. 20 anymore, so no. it's just sort of killed me. Damn you. That was not fair, Michael. God. Oh, my goodness. I love that. Are you going to say what song it was that made him so emotional, Michael? Yeah, yeah. All will be revealed. The episode's on the Stage Show podcast feed right now. And don't forget to hit the follow button when you're there so you can enjoy a weekly encounter with the performing arts. Yes, I follow the show and I absolutely love it. Uh, So you should too follow the stage show and the book show on the ABC Listen app. Um, Sometimes I make a guest appearance there too. The book show is made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Noongar people. I'm Claire Nichols. Happy reading. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.